The ethic of holiness. With Titsaba, something new enters Judaism. Torah Kohanim, the world and the mindset of the priests. Rapidly, it became a central dimension of Judaism. It dominates the next book of the Torah of Vayikra. Until now, though, priests in the Torah have had a very marginal presence. For the first time in our parsha, we encounter the idea of the hereditary elite within the Jewish people, Aaron and his male descendants, whose task was to minister in the sanctuary. For the first time, we find the Torah speaking about robes of office. For the first time, we encounter the phrase used about the robes, lechavod ulatifaret, for glory and for beauty. Until now, glory, kavod, has been attributed only to God. As for tiferet, this is the first time it's appeared in the Torah altogether. It opens up the whole dimension of the aesthetic in Judaism. All these phenomena are related to the Mishkan, the sanctuary, the subject of the preceding chapters. And they emerge from the project of making a home for the infinite God in finite space. The question I want to ask here, though, is, do they have anything to do with morality, with the kind of lives the Israelites were called on to live? And if so, how? And why does the priesthood appear specifically at this point in the story? A lot of people divide the religious life in Judaism into two dimensions. It's for Ben Adam Lechaveron, it commands about relationships between people, and Mitzvot Ben Adam Lamakom commands between us and God. The prophets focused on the relationship between the people, Ben Adam Lechaveron, and the priests supervise ritual, and the acts Ben Adam Lamakom between us and God. So. The prophets were concerned with virtue, the priests with holiness. You don't need to be holy to be good. You need to be good to be holy, but that's an entrance requirement. It's not really being holy as about. Pharaoh's daughter who rescued Moses when he was a baby was good, but not holy. These are two separate ideas. Well, I actually want to challenge that conception. I think the priesthood and the sanctuary did make a moral difference, not just a spiritual one. But understanding how they did so is not unimportant to our understanding of how we lead our lives today. And we can see this by looking at some important experimental work in the field of moral psychology. Our starting point is the American psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who teaches at NYU here in New York, New York University, in his book, The Righteous Mind. Haidt makes the point that in contemporary secular societies, our range of moral sensibilities has become very narrow. He calls such societies weird, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. They tend to see more traditional cultures as rigid, eyebound, and repressive. People from those traditional cultures tend to see Westerners as weird in abandoning much of the richness of the moral life. To take a non-moral example, a century ago in most British and American families and non-Jewish families, dining was a formal occasion. The family ate together and wouldn't begin until everyone was at the table. They'd begin with grace, thanking God for the food they were about to eat. There was an order in which people were served or served themselves. Conversation around the table was governed by conventions. There were things you could discuss and things you shouldn't discuss. Today that has changed completely. Many British homes don't have a dining table at all. A recent survey showed that half of all the meals in Britain 
are eaten alone. The members of the family come in at different times, take a meal from the freezer, heat it in the microwave, and eat it watching a television or computer screen. Now, that isn't dining, that is cereal grazing. Height became interested in the fact that his American students reduced morality to just two principles, one relating to harm, the other to fairness. On harm, they thought like John Stuart Mill, that the only purpose for which you should interfere in anyone else's life is to stop them harming others. And uh, the other principle is fairness. We don't all have the same idea of what's fair and what not, but we all care about the basic rules of justice. What's right for some should be right for all. Do as you would be done to. Don't bend the rules to your advantage, and so on. Often the first moral sentence a child says is, that's not fair. John Rawls formulated the best-known modern statement of fairness, each person has an equal right to the most extensive liberties compatible with similar liberties for all. Now, those are the two ways, being fair and not harming others, two ways in which weird people think. If it's fair and it does no harm, it's okay. However, and this is Haidt's fundamental point, there are at least three other dimensions of the moral life as understood in non-weird, i.e. in traditional cultures throughout the world. One is loyalty, and its opposite, betrayal. Loyalty means that I'm prepared to make sacrifices for the sake of my family, my team, my co-religionists, my fellow citizens, the groups that help me make the person I am. I take their interests seriously, not just my own. Another is respect for authority, and its opposite, subversion. Without this, no institution is possible, and perhaps no culture either. You know, there's a famous story in the Gemara about a would-be proselyte who came to Hillel and said, convert me to Judaism on condition that I accept only the written Torah, not the oral Torah. So Hillel said, fine, and he began to teach him Hebrew. The first day he taught him Aleph base Gimel. The next day he taught me him Gimel base Aleph. The man protested. Yesterday he taught me the opposite. Hillel said to him, you see? You have to rely on my authority even to learn the Aleph base, so rely on my authority for the oral terror also. You can't have a school, an army, a court, a professional association. You can't even have a game of soccer or baseball without respect for authority. And the third, extra value arises from the need to ring-fence certain values we regard as non-negotiable. They're not mine to do with as I wish. Those are the things we call sacred. They're sacrosanct. They're not to be treated lightly or defiled. Why are loyalty, respect, and the sacred not how liberal elites think in the West? The most fundamental answer is that weird societies define themselves as groups of autonomous individuals seeking to pursue their own interests with minimal interference from others. Each of us is a self-determining individual with our own wants, needs, and desires, and society should allow us to pursue those desires as far as possible without interfering in our lives. Loyalty, respect, and sanctity don't naturally thrive in secular societies based on market economics and liberal democratic politics because the market erodes loyalty. It invites us not to stay with a product we've used until now, but to switch to one that's better, cheaper, faster, or newer. Loyalty is the first victim of market capitalism's creative destruction. 
respect for figures of authority has been falling for many decades. We're living through a loss of trust and death of deference. Even the patient Hillel might have found it hard to deal with somebody brought up on the creed of we don't need no education, we don't need no thought control. And as for sacred, well, that too has been lost. Marriage is no longer seen as holy. At best, it's a contract. Life itself is in danger of losing its sanctity with the spread of abortion on demand at the beginning of life and assisted dying at the end. So what makes those three values, loyalty, respect, and sanctity, important is that they create a moral community, as opposed to a group of autonomous individuals. Loyalty bonds us to a group. Respect creates structures of authority that allow people to function effectively as a team. Sanctity binds people together in a shared moral universe. So all of these create a moral community. Now, once we understand all this, we can see how the moral universe of the Israelites changed over time. Abraham was chosen by God, in the, in the words of the Torah, so that he will instruct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Tzedakah and Mishpah. And um, so what, what he was looking for was fairness. And what, uh, what God was asking him to do was tzedakah and Mishpah, justice is fairness. And when Abraham's servant was looking for a wife for Isaac, what did he look for? Chesed, kindness. Somebody who wouldn't do any harm. So in the time of Abraham, those moral demands were simple, just as they are in secular society today, to avoid harm and to be fair. In other words, the prophetic virtues are close to those that prevail today in liberal democracies of the West. That may be a measure of the impact the Hebrew Bible has had on the West, but that's another story for another time. But the point is that kindness and fairness are about relationships between individuals. Because before Sinai, that's all the Israelites were. They were an extended family. They were individuals. They weren't yet a nation. After the revelation at Mount Sinai, the Israelites were a nation. They were a covenanted people. They had a sovereign, God. They had a written constitution, the Torah. They had, had, had agreed to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yet the golden calf showed they hadn't understood what it is to be a nation. They were just a mob. And uh, that was the crisis to which the sanctity and priesthood were the answer. So the service of the sanctuary performed by the Kohenim in their robes worn lechavod for honor established the principle of respect. You see a Kohen in his uniform, you respect him. As for the Mishkan itself, that embodied the principle of the sacred. Set in the middle of the camp, the sanctuary and its service turned the Israelites into a circle at whose center was God. But that was about the sacred. And even though after the destruction of the Second Temple there was no more sanctuary or functioning priesthood, Jews found substitutes that performed the same function. What Torah Koenim brought into Judaism was the choreography of holiness and respect that helped Jews walk and dance together as a nation. So they brought those other dimensions, loyalty, respect, and the sacred, into our moral life. Two other research findings are relevant here. Number one by somebody called Richard Sosis, who analyzed a series of voluntary communities set up by various groups in the 19th century, some religious, some secular. And he showed 
that religious communities lasted for more than four times as long as their secular counterparts. There's something about religion that builds us into a community, a moral community. We also now know on the basis of much neuroscientific research that we make our choices on the basis of emotion rather than reason. And that explains the aesthetic dimension of the service of the sanctuary. It had beauty, gravitas, majesty. In the time of the temple, it had music. There were choirs of Levites singing psalms. Beauty speaks to emotion, and emotion speaks to the soul, lifting us in ways reason can't do, to the heights of love and awe, taking us above the narrow confines of the self into the circle of whose center is God. So the sanctuary and the priesthood did change the nature of the moral life as far as Jews were concerned. They brought into it the ethic of Kedusha, holiness, which strengthened those values of loyalty, respect, and the sacred by creating an environment of reverence, the humility felt by the people once they had these symbols of God's presence in their midst. As Maimonides wrote in a famous passage in the Guide for the Perplexed, we don't act the same way in the presence of a king as we do when we're only in the company of friends and family. In the sanctuary, people sensed they were in the presence of the king. Reverence gives power to ritual, ceremony, social conventions, and civilities. It helps transform autonomous individuals into a collectively responsible group. You cannot sustain a national identity or even a marriage without loyalty. You cannot socialize successive generations without respect for figures of authority. You cannot defend the non-negotiable value of human dignity without a sense of the sacred. That is why the prophetic ethic of justice and compassion had to be supplemented with the priestly ethic of holiness.